Welcome to the University of New South Wales Canberra Australian Naval History podcast series produced in partnership with the Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, the Navy Sea Power Centre and the Submarine Institute which has generously supported this particular program. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoy this podcast and return for others in the series. I'm Professor Tom Frame, a former Naval Officer and now Director of the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society at the Defence Force Academy. The centre hosts a very active Naval Studies group at UNSW Canberra. Please visit our website. To find us, simply Google Naval Studies Group and UNSW Canberra. Ours will be the first website in the search results. This podcast is the second of a three-part series on the RAN Oberon-class submarines, and we've given it the title, Getting New Ears and Teeth. Let me explain why. By the mid-1970s, the RAN Oberons had proved to be immensely successful boats, but their comparative lethality was declining, and they needed a new generation of sensors and weapons. The government agreed, and the Submarine Weapons Update Program, or SWAP, was launched. To talk about SWAP and the new ears and teeth it provided to the submarine squadron, we're joined today by one of the key architects of the program, Rear Admiral Peter Briggs, on the line from his home in Victoria. We also have Vice Admiral Ian McDougall, a former submarine captain and Chief of the Naval Staff, speaking from his home in Tasmania. We have Commodore Terry Roach, the inaugural director of the Submarine Warfare Systems Centre, which was the successor of the Submarine Command Team Trainer. And finally, two former Oberon commanding officers, Captain Mark Sander, and Commander David Nichols. Gentlemen, thanks for making the time to speak with us this morning. Can I go first, Peter Briggs, to you? In the previous episode in this series, we heard something of the early success of the Oberons in the late 1960s and the first half of the 1970s. But by the late 1970s, they were starting to lose their competitive edge. Now, what was the Submarine Weapons Upgrade Program and what kinds of innovation did it involve? The SWAP was a collection of uh, minor projects, so they avoided the swamp of uh, major project management in Canberra, uh, run out of Navy and the technical departments inside the Director of Submarine Repair and Director of Naval Weapon Design. Uh, I was, had the good fortune to be the commanding officer of Oxley coming out of refit and the first submarine fitted with the components. Uh, in the sonar area, we replaced two sonars, two British sonars, with one German attack sonar that gave us an excellent all-round uh, picture, but also had the advantage of being able to track six targets and a cursor, so seven, uh, at the same time compared to the old sonars one. Uh, Oxley was fitted with the Microcuff's passive ranging sonar in that refit for the first time. That sonar had been to sea in, in ovens and other submarines earlier, but it was a new event for Oxley. Uh, a new, an update to the long range uh, passive sonar. Uh, down below, we had a new uh, gyro compass that replaced the earlier uh, Mark 23 compass and provided the vertical reference for the missiles that were to come. Uh, we were fitted with, or for, the Mark 48 torpedo. That came along a little bit after I left the submarine. 
uh, and critically, the submarine fire control system Mod Zero, uh, which gave us a, an electronic replacement for the very hydraulic uh, Chinagraph pencils and Perspex plots that had made up the, the earlier uh, original English fire control system fitted to the Oberons. So this is a real quantum leap for the Oberon and almost from what you say, it sounds as though it was very uh, basic uh, fit out, was replaced by in many ways uh, cutting edge technology. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. We, we were uh, very much ahead of anything that our close allies in the UK or the US were doing at the time. Uh, it involved significant changes to the structure of the submarine the attack sonar had a completely different main array uh, and up forward in the bow, so you could notice the distinctive uh, uh, bubble on the top of the bow for the CSU-341 uh, attack sonar. Uh, that required ship design work. Uh, it required the development of a new fiberglass dome to go over it. Uh, so there's quite a lot of extra uh, ship-wide uh, cabling, hull glands, uh, major design effort that was all done in Australia. And Ian McDougall, if I could come to you, uh, it seems like from what Peter Briggs said, this is a very ambitious undertaking. What gave, do you think, both the Navy and Defence more generally, the confidence that it could embark upon this program and deliver what the Navy needed to enhance its capability uh, in submarines? I think it has to be said that there was a lot of cooperation and assistance from various institutions within the defence organisation, obviously Defence Science and Technology Organisation, the technical uh, talents of Navy itself, but all that needed to be pulled together and I think a light should be shone on certainly Peter Briggs um, and the late Peter Mitchell, who were both relentless in pursuing this project to a successful conclusion. For what it's worth, I had a conversation with the commander of submarines in the Pacific at, at one point, and he said, what is it with you guys that you want a combat system that's equal to our best, if not better? And he understood, I think, that when you only have a small number of submarines, and having a, a really good combat capability is in some ways a force multiplier. But it was, it needed a lot of people being convinced that it was a worthwhile endeavour, not um, simply the people who held the purse strings, but those who were in a position to make a technical um, contribution. And they did. And it took a lot of cooperation and coordination and I mentioned the, the two Peter Briggs and Peter Mitchell they were the real architects. Now you say that you needed to convince people who were the hardest to convince and what did they need to be convinced about? That the outcome would be a success and I think eventually that was measured by the fact that the Royal Navy, for one, and the USN to a lesser degree, adopted some of our stuff. But the early, because it was so ambitious, it was necessary, and not only ambitious, but 
had a price tag attached to it, it was necessary to sell the um, proposal, which the aforesaid Briggs and Mitchell and one or two others did. And was there consensus though within the submarine community itself about what was needed in terms of both sensors and weapons? Did you find that somehow people, there was, there was a coalescence of view or was there in fact factions or groups saying don't buy this or don't acquire that or it's too ambitious? Can you say perhaps a little bit about that? No, I don't think so. It's perhaps moving back a few years to the time when the first Australians went to be trained and gain experience with the Royal Navy. Some of them were there for quite a long time. I mean, I'm a classic case of that in that in seven years' service at the coalface in submarines, six of mine were in Royal Navy submarines. And we gained an appreciation with the high-tempo operations that were going on. I mean, Royal Navy submarines were attached to NATO in, in the, its order of battle. And so it was far, a far cry from clockwork mousing, important as, as that was, and still is. It was um, a case of, we, were, we all came to the realization, I think, if not collectively, independently, that the Oberons had a lot to offer. And we were, in our own way, advocates and certainly to the best of our abilities tried to help the, um, the major players Peter Briggs Peter Mitchell and I should add too Peter Horriban who pulled a lot of it together in the early days from the, the Directorate of Submarine Policy So it wasn't a case of having to persuade the surface fleet that you could be better clockwork mice. It was the case that everyone could see there was great potential for a capability gain here. Yeah, I'm not sure there was total enthusiasm <laughs> from, from the, rest of, the rest of the Navy for this. Well, yes, they enjoyed having clockwork mice. But nonetheless, there was a sort of a will to succeed. And that overcame any pockets of resistance that seemed to exist. It's worth bearing in mind that at any given time in the last 50 years, the proportion of people serving in our submarines has been about 2.5. That means, obviously, it's a very small minority, and whilst in the early, very early days it might have been overly vociferous, it nonetheless remained vociferous about what it was doing and what further it could do given the capability. Terry Roach, let me come to you. What was the Submarine Warfare Systems Centre? Where was it located? And what kinds of contributions was it meant to make to Australia's submarine capability? Well, the SWISC was a successor to the Submarine Command Team Trainer established in the mid-70s by uh, then Commander Ian McDougall, and I succeeded him. At that time, the processes in Canberra of obtaining approvals for the various elements of the SWAP were still being fought out, and it required a, a lot of uh, part of that conviction that uh, 
Ian uh, mentioned was to show that there had to be a means for the integration of all of these disparate elements together. Uh, at the time, the submarine fire control system manufacturer, Singer Libroscope, uh, was delivering the system, but we could see that the, we, the people in the Submarine Warfare Systems Center, or rather in the SCAT, could see that there was going to be difficulties. And so we embarked upon a, uh, uh, a program to convince senior management in uh, Canberra that there was a need for an integration center. And we fixed upon the label of the Submarine Warfare Systems Center to make it sound rather better than it really was. <laughs> However, uh, the, the people in Canberra backed the uh, scheme and provided the money and more importantly, the manpower. We were able to recruit additional scientists and engineers both from within the Navy and from uh, outside to undertake the tasks of integrating these systems together. And it was the key, the Swiss was the key to the success of the submarine warfare update, uh, submarine weapons update uh, program. It went on to become stronger and, uh, and, be, and uh, much more capable to, so to the extent that it was able to undertake the integration of the encapsulated harpoon, the sub-harpoon. Uh, the Americans uh, were skeptical about our ability to do that and insisted that we have uh, uh, close monitoring by McDonnell Douglas, who were then the manufacturers of it, and the Naval Underwater Systems Centre in uh, Newport, in Rhode Island. We did that and we provided a level of capability as demonstrated by the successful firings at, at the, uh, the ranges in uh, Hawaii. The output of the Swiss was the, a system that could attack surface ships uh, with a, a relatively close range by torpedoes or over the horizon with harpoons. And was it the case that you were looking within the own, with Australia's own submarine community for expertise or how much did you need British advice or expertise or American advice and expertise? I mean, was it inevitable that you'd look overseas uh, or did you think, look, we really have the capability here. We can actually meet our own needs within our own resources. We didn't have the resources to go looking overseas. So we had to meet it with what we had here in Australia. And we had the talent uh, here uh, in Australia. And Were you surprised by that? Were you surprised by no, no, the I depth of experience and expertise that we had? No, uh, I was at the age where we were still bulletproof. Uh, <laughs> and we had a, immense confidence. Part of the, the, uh, the successful submarine commanding officer is to have to have confidence in your own ability. And I was confident in the ability of the Australian submarine force to do this. So there was no sense in your mind that either those who were supporting submarine operations or our own submariners were somehow secondary to those of our major operating partners. Within 10 years, we had highly uh, capable submarine officers at sea and supporting operations ashore. Indeed we had, and we had ended up with a system which was far in advance of anything that the RN had, either in their nukes or in their uh, conventional submarines, and in some respects, particularly in the sub-harpoon, 
was in advance of what the, the USN. David Nichols, you served in submarines both pre and post SWAP. What things did you notice? What were the, the great gains as an operator that you could see as soon as the, uh, the SWAP boat went, went to sea? Well, it's chalk and cheese, really, a complete generational change. The, um, the old uh, RN TCSS 9 system used uh, three types of weapon a Mark 8, which the maximum effective range was around 1,000 yards, a bit more. We had a wire-guided Mark 23, which was notoriously uh, unreliable. We also had a thing called a Mark 20, which we f supposedly fired out of the rear tubes. Half the time, you never knew when it had gone or not. So there wasn't a lot of confidence in some of those areas. But with were those rear tubes used very much at all? I mean, I heard stories we, about them being used for storage and things yeah, like that. Was never, that all true? We never had them in the RA, and they were in the Royal Navy submarines, and I served in a number of those. But, uh, um, we, we benefited from that space but stowing beer actually it was a quite, <laughs> quite a significant benefit to us um, when we got to the swap submarines and I took over Oxley from Peter Briggs um, it was an absolute when I obviously had a lot of training in the, in the SFCS and, and swap um, it was magnificent I mean the, the sensors were all uh, generational change in range accuracy bearing rate um, we had our own um, Apart from the German and the, uh, uh, the other, we had our own applications which could take uh, a range and a bearing from a single passive um, transient. That was just a magnificent uh, setup. The Mark 48 torpedo was an over the horizon weapon with wire guidance. When we fired the first ones in Hawaii, the Americans were absolutely gobsmacked that we could fire not one but two one at a service target, one at a submarine. And we had what was called telecom, which was feedback down the wire to tell the operator and the CO what the weapon was seeing, which was magnificent. They had one submarine in the US Pacific Fleet that had that capability. So they were absolutely in awe of what we did. So their um, <coughs> confidence in our competence increased almost overnight by virtue of what we'd done to these boats. And it wasn't just the capability of the submarines. When, as we, it was a, you know, a, a, a trial, really, it's called. Um, um, help me out, uh, tell you what was the trial? Um, uh, Amra. Amra, yeah. Anyway, if we had a small problem on one day of firing, we could signal back to the, S to, uh, the SFCS, uh, to, sorry, SWEP, and say, uh, we've got, oh, we got a problem here, describe it, they would work overnight, cut a new tape, put it on the next Qantas jet, and we would reload it in the summer in Hawaii the next day. Now, that was something absolutely blew them out of the water. And we continue to improve in leaps and bounds. Um, the, the whole idea of having to break through the screen to fire a heavy unit within a thousand yards was uh, no longer yeah. necessary. The sub harpoon, it's a magnificent bit of kit, and we developed a system where we could fire four, well, we could fire six, but you'd always want two torpedoes in the tube, four which would arrive simultaneously on target. Um, that, that blew the Americans out of the water, too. I mean, Literally. And also, the, well, <laughs> uh, the problem with the sub-harpoon, the only problem tactically was you and your diesel submarine, which couldn't evade or escape the datum very quickly, had four lumps of smoke and flame coming out of the water underneath which was you. So you would rather prefer to fire a target that was a long way off rather than when you were surrounded by SW units. But the capability was there, and, uh, and it was fantastic.
And if I think about innovations in aviation in the same period, which always seem to be troubled by this bit of kit won't talk to that bit of kit, from what you're saying and what I've heard the others uh, speak about is that um, this program wasn't the case of, oh, it'll take five years and we'll sort the bugs out. You're suggesting that if there were any problems, you could almost sort them out overnight and there was a high level of operational capability almost straight away. Is that, was yes, that the that's case? that's correct. And that was demonstrated that, that we could do that with the, with the Armoric trials in Hawaii. It was uh, a real eye-opener. Uh, and it changed the concept of how you drove your submarine. And there were still occasions when you were doing intelligence collection when you had to get close because that was necessary. But you didn't have to get close to fire these weapons. You could fire from a standoff distance. And in, an o in a diesel or conventional submarine, that's important. You need to be able to clear the datum after you've done your, done your damage. So that was a real step change in tactics. And Mark Sander, we've heard that the Americans were impressed by what we could do. How in your career did you observe our submarines and their capability changing the way that the Americans would rely upon us or involve us in operations or perhaps in tasking? Uh, how did you see SWAP affecting our relationship with the USN? Look, we, we generally had a very good relationship in early on with the US Navy, <clears throat> but you've heard already that SWAP brought along new sonars, it brought along new uh, fire control, but it's the weapons that David was talking about. The, uh, the US Mark 3 torpedo uh, and the uh, Sub Harpoon. So suddenly we had access to their, um, to their doctrine, we had access to their tactics, increased use of their uh, weapons uh, range or firing facilities. Uh, that then uh, moved on to uh, increased uh, for increased exercises, we introduced the lungfish exercise, which is a submarine on submarine exercise, which they then, they had the confidence that we could you know, operate you know, closely uh, together, literally in, a, in, a, in the um, geographic sense. We moved on to then exchange of personnel. Both Dave and I were fortunate enough to serve on the staff of the Commander Submarine Pacific Fleet, which was uh, an, you know, a special experience. Uh, we then, we generally then, you know, got close and close together. We now have a uh, USN staff officer on on our staff in our um, submarine force headquarters. Whereas before we knew all the Royal Navy senior hierarchy, we now, you know, the US Navy senior hierarchy are household names to us, and you know, the, the assistance we're getting with the uh, from the US Navy today in developing our submarines stems from SWAP. It's it's from those early days of, you know where you know, David said they had the confidence to work with us, they were impressed what we did, uh, what we were able to achieve and how we were able to employ the Mark 48 torpedo and the sub harpoon to its maximum effect. So of what we were doing, how much did we perhaps change either their approach to technology or tactics by virtue of what we were able to achieve through this update? I think you know, being a small Navy and therefore needing to be more, if I can say, innovative or um, using our ingenuity, they could see that what we were able to achieve from our systems, they, it made them uh, more reactive uh, and, and also access some of our technology. They could see how we could make it work and they used you know, our technology that we were able to develop. And what was the importance, and I perhaps uh, anyone may wish to answer this, what was the importance of exchanges? So people actually going to see, in a, particularly say in American submarines, they're nuclear powered, they've got different weapons. Did people actually learn a great deal from actually being on an American submarine at sea or was it more trying to work out uh, perhaps tactics or communication procedures? So I'm, I'm, I'm happy for anyone if they've got a particular view on this to share it with us. 
Yeah, we were we participated in their uh, prospective commanding officers course, and they still are uh, even more so now. But when I was in uh, Comsub Pack, I would assist their teacher with training their their um, prospective commanding officers. Uh, I went to see as a, a, a call a, a tree team. A, training guy, as a long specialist, a long navigator, so I helped them out with some of that. So there was more and more interaction. And Mark mentioned the, the technology they got from us. One aspect of the US combat system was it displayed to the operator in mathematical trigonometry, cosine, sines, tangents. The fact that we actually managed to say course, range, and speed was an innovation for them. They hadn't sort of, they'd transferred the new, the scientist approach to life to display to the operator. And it was, well, I would have, I think our operators would have found it, but we recognized that was an issue and straight away said, we need to look at course range and speed. That's, and that was a, something that they really hadn't sort of thought about. But that was part and parcel of that interaction. I think a byproduct of I had, a, I had a, an extraordinarily cumbersome uh, fire control system, as Dave has just described. Rod Fail and I, C-Road, an SSN on the uh, Bermuda tracking range firing Mark 48s as part of our Mark 48 induction. And the submarine was tracking and attacking a submerged unmanned target. Uh, the, the combat team, the fire control team, sat there passing hand notes up and down to try and work out where the target was. Over in the corner of the control room was a, a paper plot, a contact evaluation plot, which the Americans had picked up from the Brits and which we knew and loved. And uh, so we, we, we were the only two people standing around behind this diligent operator who produced a beautiful plot as we manoeuvred backwards and forwards at 15 knots. And we were able to point at the spot and say, the range there is 7,500 yards. And the operator looked at it and said, write it on the plot, 7,500. So he wrote it down. We did another crossing leg. The range there is 2,500 yards. We should be shooting right that on the plot. And as the target went overhead, um, we, we reflected on the, uh, the handronic mental rules uh, way that we'd been taught and compared it to the, the process of notes scurrying up and down the other side of the control room with no answers in sight and uh, thought we, we probably didn't have too much to learn from that process. So Peter Briggs, you were trying hard not to look and feel superior. We weren't very successful, I don't think. <laughs> Mark Sander, I think you wanted to share yeah, something about exchange. Yeah, I was going to mention um, exchange. one of the byproducts of being on exchange, uh, I was uh, heavily in demand to go across to and, and lecture at a lot of the surface ASW schools and the aviation schools about diesel submarine tactics. So suddenly we got, an, an, it opened the door to a whole range of other uh, schools, not just our, you know, our narrow corridor of submarines. Um, so, and again, it, it all stems back from those early days of, of SWAP. Um, it really did open the door for us. And Peter Briggs, do you think that the success of SWAP gave Australia shipbuilding the confidence to think we can build our own submarines to replace the Oberons? Uh, certainly in the combat system area and therefore a general boost, I think, to the standing of the submarine capacity in Australia. I relieve Terry Roach as the director of the Submarine Warfare System Centre uh, after I left Oxley and took it through that growth period, uh, we produced completely new software uh, for the SFCS Mod 1, which introduced the Harpoon missile. Uh, 
the, the software we acquired from Single Scope was, was not supportable. Uh, and we, we went basically back to a clean sheet of paper uh, and then a great challenge. Uh, took this system, uh, brought in the essential components, the missile control, guidance control units and the, the same units from the torpedoes to integrate it and, and build it up and produce the capability that David Nichols enjoyed so much in, uh, in Hawaii. Um, that same team, and you've got the, the operators combined with the uh, hardware engineers combined with the software programmers all under the one roof, able to respond very quickly to issues that David was finding in Hawaii. That same team sat down and drew up a, a specification for the combat system for the future submarine. Unfortunately, we didn't take the Swiss concept with us into the new construction submarine program, as it was called then, uh, and we reverted to the more traditional method of black letter law contracts uh, to USN provide, US providers, I'm sorry, uh, and with the catastrophic result, it was a, it was a huge failure. Uh, today, you can't buy a combat system that looks much different to the one that was specified in, in concept by that Swiss team back in the early 80s. Uh, the other thing we did, which was interesting, we developed a user uh, specification for an integrated ship control management and monitoring system, the ISCMAS. Uh, that was offered to the submarine project. Uh, they were not prepared to specify it as a requirement. It was a bit too revolutionary, uh, but they put it to both the German and the Swedish uh, providers who were then in competition. The Germans took it uh, and built it and put it into a mine hunter and subsequently into uh, their submarines. The Swedes built a, a parallel version. So they, they, they put a, an isthmus in, in the columns, but they also kept much of the core manual uh, system as well, which is probably a prudent way of doing it. But isthmus indeed was went on to be one of the success stories uh, for columns. Uh, so I've no doubt the effort of the SWAP, the capacity that was generated in the SWISC uh, had a fundamental impact on people's confidence and willingness to listen to the submarine community and uh, go forward with the with the replacement submarine that became Collins. And a final question to you, Ian McDougall, if I might. Um, I'm not necessarily asking you to say, if we had our time over again, what would we do differently? But in your time as Chief of Naval Staff, did you ever find it difficult to get people to understand the extent of our capability because they were not submariners, but you were? Yes, I guess so. I mean, there are tribes in the, in the Navy and the, all, all the tribes want to push their own barrows. And whoever is the, the, the chief at, at the time is father to all the tribes and so it tends to be a delicate balance but I mean the SINSEC is wisdom sort of sifts through that that sort of stuff and makes decisions based on what is the best for our maritime capability overall. Harking back to what we've just been talking about over the last 20 or 30 minutes I think it has to be said that size is some small, smallness of size is sometimes an advantage. 
I mean, the USN were cooperative in, in helping us. Uh, they listened to what we had to say, and as we've heard, they um, adopted a lot of the things we did, and we gained from the exchange as well, of course. But I suspect being such a large organisation, it was a lot harder for, for them to pull things together, whereas the expression was used earlier of being under the one roof and flop, uh, or rather the Swiss, and um, that was probably an advantage because there wasn't a, there was a bureaucracy to um, overcome, but it wasn't um, a huge one. And we had clearly, as has been said, developed the skills to do things quickly and and solve problems. I mean, it's amazing in 24 hours to be able to do what David was, was Nichols was talking about. So I suppose yes, but I mean, at the end of the day, decisions are normally made on the basis of common sense, and if resources have got to be put into a particular area and of course, the resources are not inexhaustible overall. Then, you know, you get you get to the right point at the end, I think. But that may sound like a, an exercise in self-justification, as the, the the CNS of a day. But we get there. Well, look, that seems like a good place for us to conclude. Sadly, our time is now up. My thanks to Peter Briggs, to Ian McDougall, to Terry Roach, to Mark Sander, to David Nichols for their insights. And my thanks to you for joining us. We look forward to your company next time. Bye for now.